Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. And so I would invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11, and we're continuing our deep dive into the Lord's table. We've been thinking about this now for, um, well, one week, and we'll look at it for probably one more week. I have, I know for sure we have one more week, maybe two. Um, this is such an important topic, something that um, we don't get a lot of time and attention on. We, we, we celebrate the Lord's table each month, but we don't often get that many opportunities to, um, to think about it in depth. And as Providence would have it, this is where we find ourselves in, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And we are looking through the lens of this letter to understand the Lord's table, because in these verses, 17 to 34... The Spirit of God prompts Paul to address the division and the dysfunction that um, was marking out this particular church's practice of the Lord's table. And in some senses, these verses are, are a companion to the preceding section in chapter 10, verses 14 to 22, where um, Paul has already given them some theological background on the importance of the Lord's table. Uh, these verses supplement that and, and, and add to it. But the thing is, in verses uh, 14 to 22 of chapter 10, he does not touch on any of the wrong ways in which they were practicing or approaching the Lord's table. He simply warns that, uses an illustration to show them why they should no longer participate in um, sacrificial meals offered to any false gods. But as we come to our text this morning, uh, our study here in 17 to 34, Paul's attempting to set straight what is bent in their midst. He wants them to understand that, and he's going to do that by rebuking them for their conduct around the Lord's table. He's going to do that by reminding them that exactly what it is the Lord's table signifies in verses 23 to 26, and then in verses 27 to 34, he is going to recalibrate their approach to the Lord's table, ensuring that all is being done decently and in order. This group had taken, as I said last Sunday, they had taken something that was meant to really be uh, mark out the church as a church, and they had messed it up so badly, so much, that they, what, what was happening could no longer, properly speaking, be called the Lord's table. But their failure ends up being our opportunity, I think, as a church. We reap the benefits of Paul's instruction which not only fills in some of the gaps of our knowledge about the Lord's table, what it signifies and its meaning and so forth, but it warns us against making those same mistakes, that we wouldn't fall into the same pitfalls. So these verses become like those orange traffic cones that keep us from you know, riding into, uh, into a pothole. Their, their foolishness becomes our wisdom and our blessing, but it only benefits us insofar as we hear it with humble hearts and in so much as we receive it with spirit-filled eyes. And so, you know, I think about Proverbs 27 and verse 12, and Solomon says, the prudent man sees evil and hides himself, but the naive proceed and pay the penalty. And um, it always amazes me how in church history, you read and study church history, how in every age, the church has to learn the same painful lessons over and over again. They have to they have to pay the penalty, as it were, rather than simply taking God at his word and walking in obedience to it. And, um, I mean, you have to ask yourself, how many times do you need to get your fingers, you know, crushed before you stop putting them in the door jam, right? That's, that's the question. 
but that's 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 I guess what living um, in in a new age provides, and so we have to be aware of that. And I think that these verses are a great warning and encouragement for us to walk in obedience. And last week, we started to just unpack the significance of the Lord's table, tracing its development throughout Scripture. And we did that first by looking back at Israel and their exodus from Egypt. And we considered some of the details of the Passover meal, and we saw that this pattern emerged from the Passover, and that is that God's wrath passes over his people, not because of um, their inherent goodness, their inherent worthiness, but because of his gracious covering through a substitutionary sacrifice. Um, On the night before God's definitive work of deliverance, what was he doing? He gave his people a meal, and he gave them a meal to celebrate from that point onward which would delineate, we said, and really define God's people as his people. This Passover meal and God's redemption out of slavery that that followed from it um, was so significant that God commanded Israel to celebrate it year after year as an ongoing memorial. And as his people would rehearse this meal, as celebrate this meal, it would, um, of, of their salvation, temporally anyway, out of Egypt, Through that Passover meal, God's past act of deliverance was brought forward in a fresh and new way into the present. The Passover meal taught every Israelite, young and old, that they had been once a slave and that their God, the only true God, is a God who rescues and sets free. And we traced it then from Israel up toward the Gospels. We saw how the Lord's table um, comes to be in the Gospel record, and it found its fullest significance in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The night before Christ went to the cross, the Gospel record tells us Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples in the upper room. But this Passover was to be transformed from a meal that was um, to celebrate Israel's temporal deliverance from Egypt. God through his son, Jesus Christ, was going to transform that meal into God's, uh, to something that would celebrate God's final deliverance from the power of sin and death, not just for Israel, but for the nations. In a sense, Jesus retools the Passover in the upper room, and he does so so that they would now be taught about what he was about to do at the cross, and that they would remember that work. God the Father was going to seal his new covenant promises in Jesus' own blood. And so Jesus took the bread that would normally have been broken at the beginning of the meal of the Passover, and he said, this is my body. And later in the meal, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus named these physical elements, we said, by what they pointed to. And he did that in the strongest possible terms, metaphorically, to say, this is, this is my body, this is the new covenant in my blood. And just as the first Passover meal was a memorial, we said to be regularly repeated year after year, Jesus turned the last Passover with his disciples into a new memorial and a new meal to be regularly repeated. And that meal would delineate and define the identity of those who are saved by Jesus' death and resurrection. And as God's people now rehearse the story of their salvation through the Lord's table, as we come to that Lord's table regularly, God's decisive act of deliverance in the past is brought forward into the present in a new and fresh way. 
The Passover, which became the Lord's table, tells every Christian, young and old, that though they had once been a slave to sin, though we had once walked under divine judgment, that our God, the only true God, is a God who rescues and sets free. We then explain the importance of the Lord's table for marking out the church's present gathering. We ask this, this kind of diagnostic question, what transforms a gaggle of gospel-believing individual Christians into a church? What makes the church a church? And the answer is their proper participation in the Lord's table. The Lord's table is something that the entire church does and does as one, as one body. It's not something that individuals would do on their own. It's not something that a small group would do on its own. It's not something that um, a family would do on its own. It's something the church does when it assembles, when it gathers. Through our participation in the Lord's table, we are reaffirming that through Christ's death, we are all sharers in Christ's eternal life and that we are bound to one another as his spiritual body. Both of those realities are being held forth in the Lord's table. God, we said, creates a gospel people who've been born again through faith, and the ordinance of baptism is that public testimony of God's saving work in their life. So baptism is important. Baptism is where individual faith goes public, and the church says this individual belongs to Christ. The Lord's table, though, is where the church renews its commitment to Christ and to his people in, in our local assembly. And the Lord's table is unique, though. From, it is unique from baptism because the Lord's table is something that we all do together. You know, baptism is one person's testimony, and the church is, is present and affirms that. But, but the Lord's table is something that we all participate in as one. Baptism, then, and the table draw a boundary around the church, marking it out as distinct from the world and from all other local assemblies, parachurch organizations, student organizations, whatever. Those are good things, but they are not the church. Baptism binds one to many, and the Lord's table binds many into one. And then lastly, we ended by tracing the Lord's table up into the present and onward into the future, and we showed how the Lord's table prepares for the glories of heaven. The table doesn't just look back at the cross, it looks forward to Christ's glorious kingdom when all will be made new, when our faith will become sight, when Jesus himself will dwell with his people, with us. And I think that is why Paul says in verse um, uh, 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I don't think that's just a, a, a temporal marker, although that's certainly in view. It is looking ahead to the future. When we come around the Lord's table, we are not just remembering the past. We are not just renewing our commitment to Christ and his people in the present. We are also receiving, we said, a foretaste of the future. The bread and the cup don't just remind us of the brokenness and the brutality and, the, the, and all the past, but it points us to the rest and refreshment that awaits us in the future, in heaven, in a new heaven and a new earth. This is the Lord's table. We set it for, before us last week in all of its panoramic beauty and weightiness. We said its roots run deep, far deeper than I think we often think about, into God's plan of salvation as it unfolded through his covenant people Israel, and culminated in the person and work of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. And it has been received by the church 
with, ex, with the exodus as a backdrop behind us and glory, the glory of heaven on the horizon. The Lord's table then is not something we tack on. And the point is that it's not something we just tack on at the end of the worship service like eating a fortune cookie after getting Chinese takeout, right? And it's like sometimes you have one, sometimes you don't. Rather, it's designed by God to be an essential part of the church's worship, a thankful remembrance of the past, a bond of unity in the present, and a wellspring of hope for the future. It is so much more meaningful than we often consider. But the church in Corinth was missing all of that. They didn't get it at all, which prompts Paul to revisit here in these verses his kind of fatherly corrective tone from the first six that we were so familiar with in the first six chapters because he wants things to be done decently and in order. So let's just read these verses again because I think it's good for us to remind ourselves of what Paul says here. He says, but in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's table. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you may not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come." So we're going to begin this morning looking at verses 17 to 22, and we're going to unpack Paul's rebuke for their conduct around the Lord's table. This, verses 17 to 22 are nothing more than his rebuking them for their conduct around the Lord's table. And we see this in verse 17. He says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Just as you read this, you can see that Paul's tone and the, even the terms that he uses in these verses are decisive here. Right out of the gate, Paul lets them know that he is not serving up sanctified wisdom, 
like he does in chapter 7 on issues that were kind of, um, it depends, we said, you know, the issues of marriage, should you remarry, or singleness, and, and things like that, where, where it's sort of up to the circumstances. It depends. Here he is decisive. He is giving them a firm directive. There are no words of praise here. Um, no fatherly encouragement. Uh, only instruction, orders. And the reason why is one of the most stinging indictments that a local church could ever hear from the lips of one of its leaders. He says, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Paul says, your church gatherings are more hurtful than helpful. I mean, that is just, that is a shot right between the eyes. The gathering of the local church weekly on the Lord's Day, which is commanded in the Scriptures, is meant to be a time for building up. Scripture says it's meant to be a time for strengthening. It's meant to be a time for heralding the glories of our triune God and the salvation that belongs to us in Christ. And as Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 24, the Lord's Day is for stirring one another up to love and good deeds. It's for encouraging each other in the things of the Lord and all the more as we see Christ approaching. And that's why he says we're not to forsake the gathering on the Lord's Day, as some have the habit of doing. But the Corinthians church, the, the Corinthian church, their problem wasn't gathering. They were gathering. Their problem was what was happening when they were gathering. Instead of being built up, they were being torn down. Instead of encouraging each other, they were discouraging one another. Instead of yielding a net benefit in gathering, their meeting was resulting in a net loss. If things, were, you know, if things were to continue as is, one could almost argue, if you were a pragmatist, it would be better if they didn't meet at all. But that's not an option. And so clearly something here has to change. What was the issue? What was it that was tearing them down? What was making their gathering worse and not better? In a word, division. It was division within the body. But instead of a fracturing of over loyalties to certain personalities or preferences, which was the issue that he addressed earlier in the letter in chapters 1 to, f- one to 4, really specifically, what we see here are fault lines rupturing in the church body between those of different social and economic standing. Look at verse 18. He says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. And uh, verse 19 is kind of an aside, so we'll just set that to the side for a second. He says, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. He says, "What Do, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. The key to deciphering the... where the fault line exists, what the source of Paul's consternation is here, is the second rhetorical question in verse 22. That's the key to decipher. What's the issue of the division? He says, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Many organizations in this day, uh, in the ancient world, shared meals together, just like we do now. Um, 
And it was common in Paul's day for food served at these meals, these communal meals, these associations and organizations that would get together. It was common for the meal to differ in quality and quantity depending on who you were. One commentator points out some interesting examples from the ancient literature where those who possessed a higher social standings, local officials, um, provincial leaders, men and women of prominence, they were given more food at the meals than others were by regulation that <laughs> was required. Some got one and a half times, some got twice as much, some were given, if you were really somebody, you got three times as much. And uh, this comment, same commentator cites examples of hosts also providing better quality food for privileged guests at their, these meals. It would be like going to your company Christmas party and, you know, the upper-level executives all get, you know, filet and, and lobster tail, and the managers, mid-level managers, just get a prime rib, and then all the direct reports get stuck with dry, grilled chicken breast. <laughs> to our modern sensibilities, that, that seems really unfair, it seems really elitist, but in that culture where the social strata were very fixed and very rigid, that was just how things were. What's pretty obvious then from this rebuke is that the same worldly mindset and practice was being carried over into the church gathering around the Lord's table as the redeemed people of God. The, the table was likely being celebrated here as part of a full communal meal with the church. Elsewhere in the New Testament, this is, is a meal referred to, um, you'll see it in the book of Acts, uh, talk about the breaking of bread. This is talking about a full meal. Uh, in Jude, verse 12, it, he speaks about the love feast. And, in, in, and again, that was the meal that surrounded the celebration of the elements of the Lord's table. But it was a full meal. But it is clear that it's clear then from Paul's candidness that what was happening was, was far from a love feast. It was anything but an expression of love. Most likely what was happening was these well-to-do members of the congregation who would have supplied the food for this communal church-wide meal were ignoring the limitations and the challenges of their less fortunate brothers and sisters. Think about it. If you were a poor individual you would have had to finish your work, whatever that work was, before you could go to such a meal. I mean, you just can't blow things off to go. And if you were a slave, as many were in that day, and think about how difficult it would be to arrive on time when your time is not your own. So what, what the Lord's table and the meal that surrounds it, uh, it, it seems like a situation that is tailor-made for those who are more privileged within the church body, to show Christ-like love and unity to their less well-to-do brothers and sisters. That seems like a perfect opportunity for them to do that. All they had to do was ensure that everyone that could participate would participate and enjoy the meal together. Did any of that cross their minds, though, in the way that they actually carried this out? And the answer is it did not. They just went right on ahead and ate anyway. And they gathered in their wealthy cliques, and they ate and they drank to their heart's fullness. And by the time their poor brethren arrived, guess what? There was no food left. There was no food. 
Verse 20, therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. These are two extremes, obviously. One is filled up to the fullest, drunk. The other one is starving. Paul, in verse 21, places specific emphasis on each one in the original language, in the grammar. He's pointing out that the well-to-do were barreling ahead, indifferent to the needs of one another, and the participation of their less fortunate brothers and sisters. There was no sharing. There was no common meal. The hungry poor were ignored, and the sated rich were just as fat and happy as their non-Christian contemporaries. Whatever was going on, he says in verse 20, it is not the Lord's Supper. It is not the Lord's Supper. And it's no wonder then that division emerged out of that kind of behavior. All the superficial and worldly distinctions between rich and poor were being carried over and reinforced in God's new creation in his church. And rather than each one looking out for the needs of others, following Christ's example, right, from Philippians 2, not looking out for your own needs, and but rather being concerned for the needs of others, Each one was taking his own fill first and leaving those who came later with nothing. So Paul's rebuke in verse 22 is no surprise. He says, what, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? He says, in this I will not praise you. I want you to notice at the beginning of verse 22, this phrase, uh, do you not have houses? That to us might seem like, do you have a place that you can eat? That's how you might understand that. And of course, the poor people had places to eat. They weren't homeless. That, 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 That verbiage, that phrase, have houses, speaks of ownership. Meaning, do you have your own home that you own, that you can eat at? It speaks directly to those who are well-to-do. It speaks of ownership and stands in stark contrast to those who have nothing. They don't own anything. He essentially says, if you want to throw dinner parties with your rich friends, that's fine. But do it at your own homes on your own time, not when the church gathers. And Paul rebukes them in the strongest possible language because their actions, he said, By their actions, they are despising the church of God. They were literally showing contempt for their less fortunate brothers and sisters. The actions demonstrate that the church meant nothing to them. It counted for nothing in their estimation. They were, he says, shaming those who have nothing. They were humiliating them. Humiliating them. They were dragging all the superficial social and economic differences with their baggage into the church where Paul says, in Christ, we are one. So one of the primary purposes, as we said this last Sunday and we're reiterating it this week and we'll say it again next week, one of the primary purposes of the Lord's table is to proclaim our union with Christ and the unity of the church To one another. And here they were destroying that by their selfish treatment of their less fortunate brothers and sisters. 
So let me just make a few points of application. First, how we treat other people, and especially other Christians in the church, is really important, full stop. It is really important. In fact, it is one of the clearest evidences of true saving faith. Look at verse 19. We skipped over that, but this is important. It's an aside in Paul's argument, but it is so important. He says, for there must also be factions among you. In other words, that's inevitable. There's always going to be some kind of differentiating, but he says, I get it. That, that's what happens in a, sin, in, a, in a sinful world. But he says, so that those, but, that's a re, but the reason is that so that those who are approved may become evident among you. The Corinthians may very well have been acting the way rich, free people acted in that day when hosting less fortunate guests in their home, in their household. But in God's household, the church, such divisions don't exist anymore. And Paul hints at that. Um, well, it wasn't hint at it. He says it explicitly in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27. He says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And then he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. His point then in verse 19, is when such divisions are carried in or creep into Christ's church, they have the net effect of validating those who are genuinely Christ's and unmasking those who are not. That said, proof of conversion does not lie simply in having the correct belief system, but in having the correct belief system that comports with and reflects correct behavior. When the tide comes in, you find out who's really a swimmer and who simply talks a good game. And one of the surest proofs of God's approval, that's what he's talking about here in verse 19, over our lives is how we treat the body of Christ. To borrow John's language in 1 John 2, he says the one who loves his brother, he's talking about not his earthly brother, but his spiritual brother, his fellow Christian, remains in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. In other words, if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, well, that's a strong, strong evidence of true conversion. First John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen in time and space... He says, cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If you can't love this person who's standing right in front of you, how could you ever possibly claim to truly love God whom you cannot see? 1 John 3, 17, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, which clearly these individuals were, and closes his heart against him, how, Paul asks, or John says, how does the love of God abide in him? Of course, the answer is it doesn't. It doesn't. As Jesus said, you will know them by their what? Fruits. And so we need to understand that how we treat others in the church is, in, in general, but especially in the church, is 
very important. And maybe drilling down as a second point of application, while economic distinctions like rich and poor are relative measures and will always exist, right? The poor, Jesus said, will always be with you because it's, it's not an absolute thing. There's, rich and poor are not absolute ter- uh, distinctions. They're relative. There will always be some who have more. There are some who have less. But they are never grounds for treating people differently in God's household or in the world, that matter, but especially in God's household, the church. The Bible calls that partiality, and it's always sinful. Look at James 2. James chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. James calls this out. He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly, this is the church gathering, with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down by my footstool. He says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. It is, not the rich, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? He says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, According to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. We studied James not too long ago. I guess it's getting longer ago. I live in the eternal present. (laughs) Everything was last week, not too long ago. But remember, the theme of the book is heavenly wisdom, we're to pursue heavenly wisdom, forsake earthly wisdom. Uh, thesis statement is in chapter 3, 13 to 18. Heavenly wisdom, James says, wisdom that is from above is, among other things, impartial. He says that uh, in, in the NASB, it's translated as unwavering, has the idea that it calls balls and strikes as, the, as they are. The point is that heavenly wisdom doesn't play favorites. The wisdom from above doesn't judge people based on superficial external criteria like their wealth or their influence in the community or their ethnicity or treat them differently because of that. If you and I are pursuing heavenly wisdom, we're to be impartial and your life must reflect the impartiality of God himself who saved you. If you possess, if I, and I, if I possess a true saving faith, you don't judge others superficially because you have the Holy Spirit within you and God never judges superficially. The Spirit judges righteously and those who have the Holy Spirit also should judge righteously. And so if you survey the scriptures, it becomes clear, and we've done this before. You can go back and listen to the old messages. Impartiality is essential to who God is. He never calls evil good, he never calls good evil. He, he, he judges impartially and righteously. Impartiality characterizes his every judgment. And as 1 Samuel 16 says, God sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
And that's how we need to judge. And the heart of another Christian in the church is one with Jesus Christ. And we need to judge them accordingly. And if the Corinthians had rightly understood that the Lord's table is just that, the Lord's table, common to all who are in the Lord by faith, they would not have despised and humiliated that segment of the church that was less fortunate by their self-centeredness. Lastly, last point of application. Horizontally speaking, the accent mark of the Lord's table ought to be placed over we and not me. The accent mark on the Lord's table, horizontally speaking, in our relationship to one another, that, dim- that dimension of it, needs to be placed over we and not the me. We'll, t- we'll get into this more next Sunday, but when we think about approaching the Lord's table in a worthy manner, and the self-examination that Paul's going to talk about later on in verses 27 to 34. Um, Paul's primary concern there is with relational dynamics in the church, not the relative purity of the communicant. I'll say that again. Paul's primary concern is with the relational dynamics in the church, not the relative purity of the person approaching the Lord's table. So questions we need to be asking ourselves are, are you at peace with your brothers and sisters in the church when we come to the Lord's table? That's a question you need to ask yourself. Are you relating to one another with Christian charity, Christ-like love? Are you being forbearing in your judgments of one another, and especially in the, one, uh, the non-essentials, accepting one another just as God also has accepted us to the glory of God? Romans 15 verse 7 says, I mean, these are the questions we need to be asking ourselves before coming to the Lord's table. Not so much, did you sin this week? We all sin, and we don't even confess our sin enough to absolve ourselves and come to the... Like, there's obviously a, 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 a personal component to it, but it's really, and this is the context in which the Paul writes, it is the relational dynamics that were at... There was division in the church, And the goal is that that division will be resolved and that everyone would come to the Lord's table every time. It's not meant to scare you away from the Lord's table, that self-examination. It's meant to draw you in. We'll get into that next time. I'm preaching next week's sermon. but. But if there is division, if there's conflict, if there's a judgmental spirit, those things need to be repented of. Those things need to be reconciled so that when we come together, the whole church participates as one body. This is so important. To partake of the bread and the cup, which, which heralds our union with Christ and our unity with one to another, and to simultaneously nurse broken fellowship with others in the church, that is some Olympic-level cognitive dissonance. I mean, that requires such... Uh, so, you got to really turn things on their head to do that which is why Paul is going to remind them and us exactly what the Lord's table signifies in verses 23 to 26. But that'll have to wait till next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we pray as a church that we would take these things to heart, that we would understand the Lord's table in all of its glory, in all of its beauty and weightiness, and that we would understand how it affects and binds us one to another. 
And Lord, I pray that there would be a fresh understanding of what it means to come in a worthy manner and what it means to um, relate to one another in the church and that we would never give um, an open door to division, to a judgmental spirit, to um, a critical heart, but instead would repent of those things. And if there's division that's separating fellowship one from another, that we would rush to make those things whole so as to come to your table as one body. Lord, I thank you that you have given us this instruction, that we can benefit from Paul's instruction in the Corinthians' failure. May it be our opportunity to live for you. Lord, we thank you for these truths. We ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.